I'm Tony Epstein, and this is The Magical Mystery Tour, a show that dives into the heart of things, exploring new ideas and new ways of seeing and being in this wondrous, crazy world we share together. My guest is Stacy Haynes. She's the co-founder of Generative Somatics, a multiracial social justice organization bringing somatics to social and environmental justice leaders, organizations, and alliances. She designs and leads programs in embodied leadership, somatics, and trauma, and somatics and social justice, as well as leading teacher training programs. She's also the founder of Generation 5, and organization whose mission is to end the sexual abuse of children within five generations. She's the author of Healing Sex, a mind-body approach to healing sexual trauma, a how-to book offering a somatic approach to recovery from sexual trauma and developing healthy sexual and intimate relationships. And her new book is The Politics of Trauma, Somatics, Healing, and Social Justice, Stacey Haynes, welcome to the Magical Mystery Tour. Thank you so much. I'm delighted to be here. The title of the book is The Politics of Trauma. What does that mean? You know, trauma is such a personal experience. Yeah, I appreciate you uh, starting with this question. As any author, I thought a lot about the title. And what feels very important is to really intersect traumatic experiences, which can feel just like what you said, very personal and very intimate, to connect those with the social context and the social conditions in which they're happening. And, you know, really one of the things that I see, you know, being 20 plus years into this work now, is that social conditions that are really based on oppression or exploitation or some people's belonging and other people's not belonging those very conditions create trauma and create the conditions for trauma. So I talk about it as like a power over social and economic system versus a power with. And whenever we have a power over social and economic system, it really counts on uh, dynamics of oppression, making whole groups of people's bad violence in order to perpetuate itself. And even very intimate traumas like child sexual abuse, often when you trace the root back to like, how did that happen? Why did that happen? And why does it happen at the numbers in which it happened? It takes us back to really needed to look at our social conditions. So thus, the politics of trauma, connecting those two. So I was wondering if you'd be into talking a bit about your background and how you came to somatic work and what you found to be so compelling about that work that you ended up making it your life's work? Mm-hmm. Yeah, it's always like, do you want the short story or the long story? So <laughs> I got into my own healing process in my 20s. Um, I grew up in a family where there was domestic violence and where I was also sexually abused as a child. And, you know, when I hit my 20s, it was kind of like, well, I either needed to heal or it was not going to go that well. And I also at that time was really, you know, growing my own social consciousness or like we say, getting politicized. 
And through that angle, I was really starting to see that all of these people before me had worked on social change and equity and environmental sustainability. And they, all of that work that people had done before me really let my life be easier. And I saw that in doing my healing work in that context, it could be a part of social change and not just that, you know, healing and social action are two distinct things. I just think they're interdependent. But I got involved in my own healing and luckily a a couple of years in, I actually found someone to work with who did somatics. And that was very different than kind of the support groups I'd been participating in. And what I found in the somatic work, which the type of somatic work I do includes conversations, standing practices, and also somatic body work, so hands-on work. And what I found is traumas and PTSD and pain really fell off of me so much more quickly when I worked through the body and when I worked with the body. It was really different than just mentally understanding it. It was transformative to let it really transform through the psychobiology, if you think about it that way. And so I also started studying the work, and I was really blown away with how many people it impacted in a very deep and transformative way. And let me just kind of hop in that, you know, transformation, that word is used a lot right now. And there's a working definition that I like to use, which is we know we've transformed when our actions can align with our visions and our values, even under pressure. Because it's really under pressure that our deep survival strategies pop out and our deep habits pop out. So I found that the somatic work transformed so many people and a wide range of people. It just completely caught my attention. And while in the place I was training, it was not a very diverse group. And I think this is true for many places in the U.S., like where there's healing groups and things like that, they often can be higher socioeconomic status, primarily white, which was true where I was studying, but I was already in social justice movement work. And the more I learned, the more I thought, oh, this is so relevant. This is so relevant for what we're trying to organize for and for the work we're trying to do in social justice. So I stayed with it. And that is now 25 years ago (laughs) that I have been in somatics and, you know, continuing to learn and evolve the work. I love that you have combined the two because I started my journey um, many years ago, and I, I was exposed to the inequities of our power over system from an early age. You know, I went through the trauma of domestic violence. I didn't experience much in the way of sexual abuse, but um, I saw violence against women and the way men treated women, and it horrified me. And I also had the opportunity to live in southern Spain for a year when I was a child and Mm. in the poorest part of the country. And I got to see the way a whole different aspect of, of human culture operates and relates to other people. So I remember when I came back to this country, um, it was during the Vietnam War, and I came back with a social awareness. And I remember first day of fourth grade, um, and this is as a result of people in Spain asking my father, why, why are you in Vietnam? 
And this was during the fascist reign of Francisco Franco in Spain. And they were asking, why are you in Vietnam? Because they saw the absolute outrageousness of a nation like the United States going in and attacking a little country like Vietnam. And so my father said, well, there are many people in our country who don't support the actions of our government, just like the way you feel about Franco. And they went, ah. Mm -hmm. And so when I came back to this country, I remember the first day of fourth grade, they had a stand-up to do the Pledge of Allegiance. And I remember standing up with everybody. And as they started doing that, looking around and being like, what the f is this? And I just sat back down. And everybody turned around and looked at me. Right. And, you know, I was nine years old. But I had a visceral sense of, of a kind of disdain for what our country stood for. So when they asked me to stand and pledge allegiance to the flag, I was like, I can't do that. It's amazing, kind of one of your first social actions, huh? Exactly. <laughs> exactly. And yeah. I, was, I was very fortunate because this was in Greenwich Village in New York City, and our teacher was uh -huh. a really good teacher and, and a really good guy, and nobody mm -hmm. ever gave me a hard time about it. And from no, then on, great. and from then on, I just sat through the Pledge of Allegiance every day. Mm -hmm. It's amazing, too, how when you said it's a visceral thing, because it's, it's something I'm so interested in, how our deep sense for equity and interdependence in some ways gets cold out of us. Because I, I really think of humans primarily as deeply empathetic, interdependent creatures. You know, we have a very high capacity for cooperation, just as we have a capacity for violence. We have a high capacity for cooperation. And I often really look at what is it that the broader community, social and cultural patterns, and the economic systems, what are they having us practice? Are they having us practice connection, cooperation, and interdependence? Or are they calling that out of us? And are they having us practice, you know, the other things that we're trying to change, like domination, violence, and exploitation? And it's so interesting to me that as a fourth grader, you felt like this is not right. Even I'm sure you couldn't have articulated something analysis about it. Right. But you felt it, huh? Exactly. My father was an artist and a musician. And even in this country, his friends, you know, they would talk about all the, the social issues of the time. And, you know, I was absorbing it through osmosis. And as yeah. you said, I didn't have yeah. an understanding or an analysis of any of it, but I was deeply affected by it. And then after I left home, I ended up in a spiritual community, which was really what I needed because I was suffering from the effects of trauma of a deeply debilitating trauma because my mother was manic depressive and crazy at times. And the spiritual community was very wonderful in many ways, but it was 99% white and people mm. who had the privilege of being able to take a 40 day training, you know, a 40 day intensive mm -hmm. residential training that yeah. I think probably cost somewhere around six hundred to maybe a as much as a thousand dollars and so the twain didn't meet the social awareness that i had grown up with really wasn't integrated within that spiritual mm -hmm. community and that understanding however we were all doing very deep psycho spiritual work where we were mm -hmm. telling our stories of 
the traumas and all the things that we went through, which was very powerful and very healing and also very, very connecting because going through that with each other, we all fell in love with each other. So we went from being deeply traumatized and often feeling very isolated to what you call a sense of deep mutual connection of shared mm-hmm. experience and mm-hmm. understanding. Yeah. Yeah. You know, it's interesting. Um, I think it's starting to change now, but there are so many places where people gather for psychospiritual development or yoga or somatic training or psychotherapeutic training. And because the vast majority of those places don't have an understanding of the broader conditions or a systemic analysis about how, I think of it, of course, as how power is distributed, but really about how safety, belonging, and dignity are distributed in an unequal way, that there's ways that those environments can be very deeply healing for individuals, but then not touch the broader social conditions or inequities that continue to happen and that can continue to impact either them or other people. And, you know, one of the things that I've really been exploring for a long time and, you know, I'm not the only one that has been present throughout many social change movements over time and also many spiritual practices do lead to social action. But this combination of healing and social action, I've really come to think of it as healing should lead to social action, right, to decrease the suffering for all beings. And social action is better when it engages a deep healing because, of course, many of us are organizing and working for social justice or climate justice because we've been very close to or in communities that experience a high level of trauma. So these connections between personal transformation and systemic transformation, I really hope over these next couple of decades that we really start to see these two things as co-arising or as very mutually beneficial. You know, one of the things that worried me, you know, if I think about my early training days and I trained in somatics and a number of other modalities too, is who I kept seeing get access to really powerful transformative work were primarily white communities. I was always there on scholarship, so I was doing dishes and sweeping up. (laughs) You know, I came from a working class family and I have middle class access now. But um, I thought, wow, these people are getting this transformation that's benefiting them, it's benefiting their families. And many of them are taking it back into organizations or companies that continue to actually negatively impact many people in the environment. So it's this odd cycle of people with more access or white privilege or wealth getting access to transformational work, but then that transformational work not inherently then being used to better equity for all people or to come into right balance with the planet and really solve the climate disaster that we're heading toward. So it's like a contradiction in that way. And I really see as many who do healing justice work, we want those things to be co-serving right, that life leads toward more life and transformation personally leads toward social transformation. And that's so critical to really understand, I think, particularly privileged white people and even somewhat lesser privileged white people are still very insulated and they can't really fully understand or empathize with what 
other people who don't have the same level of privilege are going through. Even though they hear about it over and over again in the news, they don't feel it. They don't have a visceral, embodied, or somatic sense of that experience, and therefore they dismiss it as not being particularly important. Yeah, or, or in some ways maybe not relatable. You know, it's funny, we, we have such mass access. I mean, we're seeing it in this time, right? Most of us are spending time on computers, phones, because most of us are sitting at home or in our apartments now. But even with this mass access, human beings have really evolved very relational animals, and it can be hard for us to relate to larger and larger groups. There's lots of very interesting kind of evolutionary studies on the size of group that humans can organize within and relate to. But I do think our empathy is something that we can cultivate, you know, and I do think it's a felt sense of empathy, not just a concept. But I want to share with you something that I really learned and have been kind of working with through somatics and then maybe backtrack into trauma. One of the things we really see through somatics is that we embody habits, we embody ways of thinking or even worldviews, we embody like which emotions are okay to feel and not feel through repeated practice over time, right? Now, some of these will be highly related to trauma, which we can talk about, but it's really through practice over time that we embody ways of thinking, ways of relating, and other habits. And what's interesting is, again, if we back out into a bigger view of our social structures, our culture, and our, our economic systems, those things are so big that they basically teach us habits in order to function inside of them. So one way that I'll talk about is, is that we embody the social norms and the economic systems in which we're raised and live, even when we don't agree with them. So I think many of us had a sense for justice. We might not have had that word. I know I, I really like fairness. Like I hated things being unfair when I was a kid. Mm -hmm. But many of us had a strong empathy or a sense of fairness when we were young. But we have to operate inside of these bigger systems, which keep training us into more individualism or keep training us into othering, learning to other others or other ourselves or have us be more and more disconnected from the planet because we're not interacting with the planet as something precious and live every day. So even when we don't agree with those values, they still get in us, we still embody them, and then we still enact them. And since we're talking about white people, you know, one of the things that I see, like I really hold that my learning and my embodiment of racial justice will be something I work on my whole life because I embodied white supremacy right? That's just what we do. Or I embodied a kind of sexism and internalized sexism that I'll also continue to need to work with my whole life because those aren't my values and it's not freeing. Yeah. Mm -hmm. So what I appreciate about somatics is can really help us understand it's like, how do we change on a deeply personal level? How do we change interpersonally? And then how do we keep lining up our lives and our actions and how we spend our time with the things that we most value? And I think lastly here, it's also a way for me to cultivate compassion. Like sometimes I get so frustrated and I'm like, oh my God, how is white supremacy 
so intensely strong after hundreds of years, you know, and after so many movements. And obviously it has changed over time. Or I get frustrated sometimes. It's like, why can't we as white people wake up faster? And I think part of my compassion is I go, well, everything is training us to not wake up in the bigger systems. And we have to counter that by a different practice, a different study, and different types of relationships. So I hope I didn't go too far off track. Not at all. Not at all. Okay. All right. Good. Um, There's also the issue that the privileged and and the perpetrators of this system of power over are also adversely affected and even traumatized by the effects of this culture or the system that they have had the major part of creating without even realizing it. It's like they've become numb to it. And I think in a way they have to become numb to it because to be empathetic and somatically aware of the suffering of the people around you would not be possible without doing that, I think. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Yeah, I think this is important and also very, very nuanced. I agree with you. I think power over social norms and economy harms everyone because it separates us. You know, the real pain of unequal economic distribution, it's very, very painful to see people suffering or to see a mass accumulation of wealth and what that's costing others. And it's always important, and I, I know you mean this too, but that it impacts different people really differently. You know, those people in positions of more privilege, whether it's gender or class or sexual orientation or race or even country of origin, you know, have access to a kind of resource, um, types of safety, not all types of safety, choice and mobility in a very different way than communities and peoples who are much more exploited and targeted. And I agree with you, it impacts all of us, makes all of us unwell. And, you know, I think just for myself, just two stories, you know, I have a very deep commitment to humans being in our right balance and relationship with the planet, right? And that, that life can sustain over thousands of more years, right? That we don't ruin the earth and the atmosphere. Mm-hmm. And I get in a car and drive and I get in a plane and fly. And that contradiction, trying to deal with those contradictions when we are sensitive and we do feel it, can be very painful and, of course, can keep helping inform our choices. And then I think also about, I mean, I thought for a long time about my father, who's one of the people who sexually abused me when I was young. And I look at the things that shaped him, like who he was supposed to be as a man, someone who was working class, who was always trying to make the American dream. Someone who learned very, very early on that violence was primarily how you solved things. Like, I look at all of that shaping, and none of it excuses his violence, but there's a way that I can widen my view and at this point have a lot of compassion for how he was shaped, and that he also, as a working-class guy, didn't get access to a kind of transformation and growth that could have helped him other than born-again Christianity. And I have to say, that really didn't help (laughs) with the healing and with the accountability. Mm -hmm. So it's such a complex set of factors, huh? It it sure is. Um, And I love the topic of, of what you call centered accountability. 
and relating it to the issue of accountability and all the, the contradictions that we experience, not only in the world around us, but, but also in our own lives and the way that we relate to things and how it relates to our most aspired values. Yeah, I talk about centered accountability as an embodied skill. So one thing about the approach of somatics is we really look at there being these three core components to embodied change. One is growing our somatic awareness, which is that we can feel and sense and really live down inside of our own skins. One thing about trauma and also the impact of oppression is in order to survive, in many ways, we have to compartmentalize or contort or dissociate from our lived experience because that experience is overwhelming. And I think many times can feel unsurvivable if we feel powerless or helpless inside of it. So building somatic awareness to learn to sense a wide range of sensations, feel a wide range of feelings, and be connected into ourselves is an important part of the healing process. Another component is somatic opening, and that is the deep habits that we form out of trauma, out of oppression, and just out of living. They get remembered in our muscles. They get generalized into our nervous system, and they become habits. Some of those habits are useful, some aren't. But in order to really transform, we have to morph, change, open, and process some of those embodied habits to open up the opportunity for new moves or new practices or new experiences. And then lastly, somatic practice. And, you know, I'll talk a lot in the book about what skills, what competencies, what know-how do we want to embody that really line up with who we want to be, with what we care about, and what kind of actor we want to be in the world, how we want to participate in the world. And a lot of times trauma does not leave us with the embodied skills that we need, right? Often trauma doesn't leave us with knowing how to have a centered boundary or knowing how to know what our needs are and make requests based on those. Or sometimes we get so protective, we no longer are that familiar with how to be really empathetic and generous with others. So one of the pieces we talk about is that often trauma, oppression, and privilege leave us with the embodiment of being under-accountable or over-accountable. And most of us really have to relearn centered accountability, right? Accountability that's self-responsive, responsive to other people, that can really get the difference between impact and intent and can hold these wider social conditions as real. I'll tell another story. Inside of Generation 5, um, that was mostly survivors of, adult survivors of child sexual abuse who were really organizing to help change, I mean, to help end child sexual abuse, of course, as a vision, but to really bring child sexual abuse kind of out of the therapy room and back into social change, right? So we could really address it at a bigger level in a more complex way. And I remember some of the white, you know, women-identified survivors of child sexual abuse had a really hard time sometimes struggling with white privilege and white supremacy and racism because they had been so impacted and truly victimized by child sexual abuse. So what centered accountability lets us do is validate our own experiences 
right, being dignity about that, but also really widen out and see that we might be inadvertently participating in the harm of others and kind of have a wide enough capacity and emotional range to be able to do both of those things. I don't know if that makes sense. Oh, yes, absolutely. I remember going through much of this myself in that early spiritual community when we were sharing our stories and exploring, often really exploring our own stories for ourselves for the first time and seeing that that we weren't the only ones who had these issues and that just that experience, that sharing of that experience and seeing ourselves in each other opened up a doorway that that we, I don't think any of us really had any idea even existed. It's amazing to not be alone, huh? It is. And and to feel like you're trapped in a situation that, that you don't see a way out of, you know, to be traumatized and then experience the trauma of feeling that there's no way out, that's a devastating thing. It drives many of us to desperation in different ways. Yeah, that's right. That's right, exactly. That's right. And I think I was very fortunate that my desperation led me in creative ways to heal rather than to take it out on others, which is another way that, that people express or try to resolve their trauma, which doesn't actually resolve yeah, it at right. all. No, that's right. Or people go into a lot of, you know, harmful drug and alcohol use, harmful use mm -hmm. of food and sex, you know, all the different ways to try to basically numb our pain and survive, mm -hmm. you know. Somatics has a bit of a unique definition of trauma. And for me, it really helped when I got into somatics to go, oh, all these things I'm suffering with, there's not something inherently wrong with me, right? Wrong with my being or my character. Rather, I've been traumatized. And these are survival strategies that are self-perpetuating that I now think are something wrong with me, mm -hmm. right? Yes. And of course, healing helps us transform all that stuff. And or to at least see more, it differently um, to begin with. Definitely see it differently. So somatics really looks at experiences are traumatizing or traumatic when they break apart our inherent need for safety, belonging, and dignity. And we really look at those three things, safety, belonging, and dignity, as you can think of them as biological needs. They kind of come along with a package of having a body. Mm -hmm. But we're really built to seek out and attract for safety, both for ourselves and also for the people we identify with. We are social animals, like we're pack animals, we're herd animals, and it's very, very important that we find a place of belonging in the pack, right, or in the herd. Isolation is very, very difficult on human beings. I mean, we use it in our prisons and we use it in torture because it's so terrible for us, right, like throwing people into isolation. So connection is so key. And then dignity or significance, you know, that we want to know that we matter or that we have worth or that our contribution to the whole makes a difference. So somatics really understands those as inherent needs. And one of the things that trauma or, again, the impact of oppression does is it breaks those apart. It splits them. So that in trying to survive trauma, we might have strategies that take care of safety, but at the same time, it abandons our affection. 
or trying to take care of connection, but it abandons our own sense of dignity. And those start vying against each other inside of our survival strategies, and we suffer more and more because we actually need all three, and we need all three of those connected or woven back together through the healing process. Mm -hmm. Yes, and for me, it's been a lifelong project to develop those those three things in my life because Mm -hmm. growing up, I did not have any of them, and I struggled so much with the lack of those, and I suffered tremendously and felt just tremendous inadequacy and self-loathing and shame as a result of it. But I worked very, very hard, and it just took an incredibly long time. I'm, I'm deeply heartened when I see new generations who are doing this work and working through things much faster. But this thing about trauma, it, it locks us the immediate thing, which addresses the first key aspect of somatics, is it locks us out of our bodies because we don't feel mm-hmm. safe in the experience of being in our own bodies. So that's such a key starting place. Mm-hmm. And it's often, yeah. it's often such a, a major revelation to have a visceral sense of being in our own bodies. I mean, to really mm-hmm. have a deeply embodied sense of being in a body Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. Yeah. You know, it's wild because it's such a deeply wise thing to do to leave our bodies or dissociate in order to survive something that is traumatic or really overwhelming. And that could be something happening to us or that can be witnessing someone else be harmed. You know, like a lot of kids have trauma because like what you shared, witnessing domestic violence. Mm-hmm. And you know, often being impacted by it ourselves, too. You know, what I appreciate about, you know, modern neuroscience is neuroscience is really kind of pointing out how some of these things work inside of us. They don't by any means have all the answers, but it's an interesting study. And I think most people have really heard about kind of the fight-flight response. And what we know now, this is somatic, this is our body-mind doing this. It isn't us thinking about it and making it happen. But under stress, the normal responses are five. There's fight, right, an automatic reaction to fight and self-protect. There's flight, right, we want to run away, we want to get away. There's freeze, and I'll talk a little bit more about freeze in a moment, but it's that getting really, really still and kind of disappearing inside of ourselves, but literally not being able to move. There's appease which we can also see in the animal world, that shrinking ourselves, making ourselves non-threatening, kind of like if I don't hurt you or if I appear non-threatening, you won't hurt me. Right, the way, the way animals will roll over on their back and expose their most vulnerable exactly. parts. Exactly, yeah. exactly. It's like the dog showing its belly, yep. right? Mm-hmm. Yeah. And then the fifth one is dissociate, which is really like checking out and leaving, leaving as much as we can right? Like our bodies might stay there, but we're taking the rest of us away. Mm-hmm. But fight, flight, freeze, appease, dissociate. These are these built-in, automatic, we don't have to think about them, reactions to traumatizing and threatening experiences. So the thing that happens is that these responses will get generalized. 
So if my impulse is to run and I got hurt that way once or twice or 15 times, that gets so deeply built into my nervous system, my neuronal pathways, my muscular system and impulses that it runs automatically even when I'm not currently being threatened, right? Mm. It generalizes and then we embody that strategy and it can be at a very subtle level. Like my joke is with flight response, like people who really had that as a major strategy of survival, you know, sometimes they'll say, oh, well, I'm always the person to leave a relationship first. Mm-hmm. Or once a situation gets overwhelming, I'm just out. I don't need to deal with it, Right. Mm-hmm. But it's fundamentally still a flight response operating when something gets too pressured or too intense. And that can be good intense or bad intense. So we embody these strategies. And then these are often what we're suffering with in what we call PTSD. More like you talked about all the work that you've done. I mean, same with me. I'm like, okay, years of practice healing and body change. And some of my survival strategies that I really majored in they're still in me. Mm-hmm. If I'm under a lot of pressure, they'll still come up. I just don't quite run the show like they used to, and I don't suffer in them like I used to. But these are wise ways of surviving, and they're embodied, right? They're not just to be understood with our minds, but really works through our bodies in, in the healing process. This gets into a really fascinating thing because you you talk about you know inquiring into those survival strategies and asking what are they trying to accomplish. So giving mm-hmm. a deeper respect for this this ingrained process that we have grown to be debilitated by and to feel cut off from life by. Right. But in somatic understanding, you're addressing the deep functionality of it and respect for it. And it's mm-hmm. it's like that notion of you can't really change something until you really recognize it and accept that it is there. Mm-hmm. And that mm-hmm. acceptance is such a difficult thing because like with trauma and pain, we do everything we can to push it away. And yet yep. if we don't come to terms with it and the only way to do it is to really face it. It's like, like in the Tibetan Buddhist tradition of facing your demons and embracing them because in a sense, we have to recognize that that is a part of us. And even if it's mm-hmm. not a part of us that we aspire to, it's a part of us that we need to heal. And the only way to heal it is to treat it with a, a kind of dignity and respect. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Let me, let me give an example of this, because this can be so counterintuitive. I'm thinking about person that I worked with probably over about five years, and she had many experiences of trauma from sexual violence to growing up poor. And also, when she came out as queer to her family, they basically dismissed her. So lots of layers of trauma for her. And one of the ways that she really coped or one of the survival strategies that she embodied was dissociation. So she just check out was hard for her to sustain being present, especially if she felt more stress or pressure. And that dissociation kind of combined with a certain kind of appease. So she wouldn't choose relationships. She would basically wait to get chosen. She wouldn't go toward what she wanted and cared about. She'd kind of wait. If it came to her, great. If not, she'd do whatever came to her. So this combination really of dissociation and appease 
And one of the first things we want to do in somatics is get really curious about where those automatic, and I'm going to just keep saying intelligent and wise responses, where they live in the soma. So one of the ways that she talked about dissociation, when I'd ask her, you know, where do you feel that or where you dissociate, she would really float up in her body, kind of back out the right side of her head and kind of float behind herself. So we just got really curious about like, how do you do that? And how does that feel in your body? So this kind of floating up, back and out to her right side, which is interesting. Many, many people will describe that. People will describe that or they'll often describe tucking themselves very, very deep down in their own guts, like hiding away, dissociating inside. Then when we would talk about, well, let me just stay on the dissociation. So we talk about that. And then the next question after how do we do that in our bodies is, even though this is causing a lot of suffering, what is it that that dissociation is taking care of? And if we really listen to the body, it will tell you, like dissociation is usually getting away from pain and abuse. It's often removing ourselves from demeaning situations. It is getting away from a loss that's intolerable, right? So if we really listen, what's the wisdom? What is that dissociation trying to take care of? We can start to open up some avenues for listening and compassion and self-compassion for our survival strategies. And then it's also really okay and relevant to ask, and what is this dissociation costing you today? Like what impact is it having on your current life? And for her, there were many. It's like she had relationships that had been abusive as an adult. She didn't know how to move toward what she really cared about in life. She was often lonely because she didn't know how to connect with the people she really wanted to connect to, or during a connection, it would get overwhelming and she'd dissociate. So there are many things that she knew were her reasons that she wanted to transform or heal. So in this, there's a lot of different practices and processes we would do, but just continuing to use this as an example, we first do a whole process of in the sensations, in the body, and with conversation, appreciating that survival strategy or that dissociation for what it did and what it protected us from. In somatics, it's called blending. We blend with that shape. We blend with that narrative. We get in with it and support it in what it's been doing. Often what starts to happen then is a thawing out in the body, like a softening or an enlivening or a relaxing. And as that thawing starts to happen, often what that survival strategy is holding at bay is the pain that we didn't fully experience or is the impulse to run or hit or scream, some protective impulse. And what we'll do then is help those experiences process through the body. It could be grieving. It could be that the impulse to run was so strong and we'll do a process on the somatic body work table where someone can really move their legs and feel themselves moving their legs like they could use that energy to run now or to process anger in different ways. So it's this layered piece of really understanding that those survival strategies and how to embody them are protecting us from other things that now with support, we can have enough resource to process and get on the other side of instead of keep trapped in our bodies. And you have a process that you call the walk-in and walk-out process? 
Uh-huh. Yeah. <laughs> Which yeah. really sounds like a, a really beautiful, skillful way to approach some of these things. Yeah, that's one of our practices that really helps us start to get to know where do these survival strategies or what we'll also call condition tendencies or habits, where do they live in us when we add a little bit of pressure? Mm-hmm. So, you know, if you and I were together, one of us would walk toward the other and in a socially uncomfortable closeness, right, which is different for different cultures, but stand a little closer than normal, hang out for 10 seconds and then back up. And in that, we just start to notice what happens to your breath, what gets more tight in your body, what do you make up about the other person, right? It starts to let us get to know where we go under pressure and then how we can start to work with that. So... I am completely loving the vastness of our conversation. And there was something you said earlier that I want to loop back to if you're interested. But you mentioned shame. And where there is trauma, there is shame. Are you good if we go there? Absolutely. I'm, I'm totally with you wherever, wherever we go. Great. You know, like you shared, I feel like shame has been a very deep, um, has been with me. And I've had a lot of shame that's been connected to my experiences of violation and hurt and also some of my gender and class experiences. And shame is such a, like, there's an entire section of the book on healing shame because really where there's oppression, there's shame. Where there's trauma, there's shame. And it plays just a very difficult role for us. Like you were talking about self-loathing, Shame can just leave us with a kind of self-hatred, the deep feeling that we're flawed, that we're too much, that we're too little, that we're tainted, and that feeling that if anyone ever really knew us, they would leave us, hurt us, not like us, right? Mm -hmm. Shame is just very, very difficult and limits us. And so we just did a lot of study into what is shame somatically? How can we heal it somatically? And found a really interesting thing, and I don't know if this made sense to you in the book, but from a somatic viewpoint, again, where there's kind of the pain or the destruction of trauma, shame just seems to pop up in those areas. And when we, again, look somatically at shame, that plays a very interesting role. It's, it's very compelling, And the shame does two things for us, if we think about it in this uh, this point of view. The first thing it does is shame leaves us with some sense of power. And that may feel contradictory, but when it's I'm bad or I could have done better or something's wrong with me, it still leaves some locus of power with us, which is better than being helpless. And in many experiences of trauma, we were helpless which is very overwhelming. The second thing that we see shame does is shame can keep us away from the much deeper emotions that are a very normal part of healing trauma. So it can help keep us away from a a deep feeling of abandonment or can help keep us away from agony or rage or terror, right? Like in the emotions, the, the extreme types of emotions, which are the normal emotions when we have been traumatized in some way. So kind of like we talked about with dissociation, there's a process with shame where we kind of get close to shame, acknowledge shame, 
get to know it and where it lives in us and then get to know what it's been protecting us from so that we can enter in and heal those deeper pieces, which interestingly also helps to heal the shame. There are other components to healing shame. There's a practice of self-forgiveness, how to generate self-forgiveness. There's a practice that you brought up earlier of learning centered accountability because shame often leaves us under accountable or over accountable. So what's centered accountability? And anyway, there's a a whole combo because it's a big process, but I just thought it was important to bring up because it's such a, you know, a relevant part of trauma or, or internalized oppression. Yes, one that I can totally relate to. I grew up in a family of people who who practiced self-deprecation. It's the art of putting oneself down oh, before somebody else has yeah. the opportunity to do it to us, which is an aspect of that, that sense of power that shame gives us, in a way. That's right. And it also helps us to avoid the real, full, visceral experience of the trauma and pain. Yeah. That underlies it. Can I ask you a question? Absolutely. What was one of the most potent ways for you to come back into your body, and what was the benefit of that? Let's see. It's been different at different times in my life. I've become quite good at it more recently, like in the last 10 or 15 years. But I remember in the early days, even though I was practicing intensive meditation, I still was not well-grounded in my body. And at the time I was doing body work, I was doing a kind of martial arts foundational training without the fighting parts, the embodied Mm -hmm. part of it. And yet it took a long time for me to really feel safe enough to work through the things to allow me to really fully re-enter my body. And I love the concept of blending, of blending with all the stuff that we're carrying in our bodies. Yeah. Yeah, it makes it easier to get back in. But I appreciate what you're saying because when we do get back in, there is the processing of the trauma to do, and it's not not painful, <laughs> which right. is also why it's so important to have support, to have resilience, which we can talk about too, to have new practices. But what what was the benefit of you, or what is it like now to live more fully in your own being, in your own body? For me, there's tremendous joy in my body, and there's the energy. I can feel energy flow in my body, and that energy is delicious. The flowing of the energy is delicious. The joy and the love that I can experience viscerally, that isn't a conditional thing. It's, it's something that's free. It's liberated in my body, and it's something that I can pretty much access anytime. I remember to do it. (laughs) I mean, there are situations I get in where I get triggered and I forget. I I lose that connection and I forget that that's even a possibility. But it's not very long before I I remember that I can go back and I can find that place inside. In my body, not even so much inside as it extends beyond just that inner safety at this point for the most part. That's right. Yeah. Yeah. It's really beautiful how you said all of that. And I know it can sound maybe weird or woo-woo at first, somatics, Mm -hmm. but it is like when people talk about yearning to be whole, 
what's so interesting is when we can come back and occupy ourselves again, that is so much of what gives us a sense of wholeness, like our parts have been compartmentalized or cut off, and that it is not only ourselves psychologically and emotionally, but again, literally like our tissues, the life force that runs in us our ability to respond instead of react. It's kind of this holistic experience. And when you talk about feeling the energy run through you or the life run through you, you know, probably any of us, if we think about some of our best experiences, it involves feeling relaxed, alive and and energetic in ourselves, connected to others. And all of that really happens in and through the body. And it's hard to have those experiences when we can't live inside of ourselves. So it, it's the body is such a profound, I don't know, doorway. I hate to call it that because it's really how we exist. But, but yeah, you know, it's I, such I a profound the, place. Yeah, I use the term portal sometimes. Yeah. Because after you know a life of being disconnected, it seems kind of like a magical portal to be able to connect with something so profound, even though it's so natural, or at least should exactly. be natural. Yeah. 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 That's great. You know, I wouldn't want to spend a whole time talking about trauma and social change without also talking about resilience and collective social action. So resilience, one thing that's just so amazing about resilience is that it too is inherent in us. You know, I really think about our bodies or our somas as three billion years of evolutionary wisdom and then we have this animating force or spirit. And while we have many ideas about what happens after we die, none of us really know, right? Mm -hmm. But this resilience is as automatic and inherent in us as the survival strategies we talked about earlier. And resilience is really our capacity to bounce back, to come back to kind of a cohered, connected feeling and way of being, even after experiencing trauma and oppression. And just as we can go into kind of a hyper-alert and hyper-aroused state, we can also access resiliency and have. I often think any of us who are alive still, you are more resilient than what happened to you. You are more powerful than what happened to you because you made it. Mm -hmm. You know, that's really my orientation about us. And then what I love about resilience is we can literally practice it and cultivate it and access it on purpose. So it sounds like you have daily practices. I think probably more and more people have daily practices. One of the things as we introduce people to resilience is to take on a daily resilience practice, whether it is a moment of art and music or dance, whether it's a very conscious connection with spirit and how that feels for you, whether it is being with some aspect of nature, whether it's your houseplant, your cat, or the wilderness right, or the night sky. These are all things shown to bring us resilience and to evoke resilience, but to really turn those into daily practices and then feel them like we've been talking about in the body and in the soma. It just creates such a beautiful resource to come back to and also can be a relieving counterbalance to some of the the harder parts of healing. I want to mention one study. There's a lot of research around trauma that folks can, you know, check out. But there's a South African psychologist. Her, her name is Pumla Gabodo Madikazela, 
and she is doing amazing work in the world. But she was a part of the Truth and Reconciliation process and does a lot of indigenous-based healing processes around apartheid, around trauma, around intra-community violence in South Africa, and speaks internationally, too. But she did a piece of research where what she saw during the apartheid regime still, that in communities where there were political assassinations, those communities that came together after the murders, that came together and drummed together, danced together, sang together, and moved together, we would say that they practice resilience together. There was much less intra-community violence than communities where there was a political assassination, right, from the apartheid government, and people kind of split and compartmentalized and didn't connect and didn't practice together. So there's something I think very profound we have to learn who care about social justice, those who support social movements, about inviting our collective resilience. You know, when you think about how overwhelming it can be to work on decarceration or how overwhelming it can be to be dealing with the immigration policies of this presidency and people in cages at the border or how overwhelming it can be to work on climate justice, it's so essential for those doing social movement work to really know our own resilience strategies to sustain and to shift our collective psychobiologies back to a more and more cohered state, and to also be able to kind of vision and create strategy from a more resilient space rather than from our survival strategies, which can have a lot of consequences that we don't actually mean. In the animal kingdom, animals naturally know how to shake off the experience of trauma immediately after it happens. Mm-hmm. And... We get trained out of our natural self-supporting and resilient Mm -hmm. instincts, I think, in our culture. Yeah, we do, sadly. Resilience definitely helps to reopen those and let things move. And yes, there are so many animal videos you can watch online about animals in the wild. Because domesticated animals can get PTSD, but it's mostly because they are repeatedly hurt by humans. But in the wild, there's this very natural impulse that there's a traumatizing experience. There is a shift in the breathing pattern. There's a trembling that moves through the whole body. There's a shaking off. And literally, that animal's nervous system can reset to balance or to a centered, resilient state. It's amazing to watch. Mm -hmm. Now, when we're children, we don't necessarily know how to do that. Do you know if there's if there's a significant difference in our ability to do that naturally as children? As children versus adults? Yeah. Mean? Well, it's interesting. I would say that kids have it more intact because it isn't so trained out of them yet. So this is a story that I share sometimes. It was a younger girl. She was about nine years old at the time. And basically in the context of school, really, really messed up publicly about something like in front of everyone and was mortified and embarrassed about it. Now, other people weren't shaming her, but she really felt mortified about it. And I got the opportunity to support her after that. And mostly what I did is just offered a somatic ground asked her to feel her body, and then let her body do what it wanted to do. And it was fascinating. Because there was a ground of support, she really just laid on the floor and writhed around on the floor, writhed around on the floor with just how terrible it was that she messed up for everybody and in front of everyone, and then 
started to tremble. Trembling in the somatics is really a very deep release of the tissues. You want to let that happen. I just kept supporting her, telling her it was okay. And then at some point she had a few tears and then she took a couple deep breaths. And then she thought about it differently. She went, oh, I guess people aren't really that mad at me. I don't think they're mad at me at all. It came to a natural conclusion that shifted her thinking about it and also shifted her shame about it. But I think she could do that because she was supportive and also because she was young and she hadn't been too trained out of it yet. So I really think it depends on our experiences and the level of support around. But I do think kids and adults can access our resilience very readily just by purposely putting our attention toward it and then really letting ourselves somatize it or feel it. So, I mean, the good news is, like, we can be lifelong learners. You know, we can keep growing and changing, even very deeply. Mm-hmm. And what you described, it's a fascinating process of how trauma and shame lock us into our isolated sense of self and by being supported to release it or to find a way to express it or release it through our body, we can be freed of being trapped in that like okay. constriction or contraction of the trauma and shame being locked in the body. That's right. Exactly. You can look up generative somatics. That's the social justice organization I helped co-found. And we have a practitioner's network they particularly serve people doing social and environmental justice work, but also serve a broader community. You can also look at some of the other somatic schools. There's kind of a range of somatic approaches. Strozzi Institute has a whole cadre of somatic coaches and therapists. There's also Hakomi, people who are trained at the Hakomi Institute. There's also somatic experiencing work, which is Peter Levine's work. There's also Pat Ogden's work, sensory motor psychotherapy. So the good news is somatics has really blossomed in the last 20 years, and there are many people who are well-trained. The plug I'm going to put in, well, too, there's a little bit of a default in psychotherapeutic somatics to just focus on somatic awareness, which is bringing your attention to your body and then talking about it and bringing your attention to your body and talking about it, that is very powerful. And it doesn't do what somatic body work does. There's a profound learning that when we work on the body through touch, through working where the muscles have helped to compartmentalize traumatic experiences, through how we're able to feel life in ourselves or numb it, that really shifts very quickly when we work with the tissues as well. And that's different than a massage. It's like a therapeutic process while using touch and breath patterns. So as anyone might look for a somatic practitioner, I would ask, you know, do they do somatic body work? Do they do standing practices? Because standing practices really help us learn new embodied skills. Three components that I talked about before are important. If a somatic therapist doesn't do that or a somatic coach doesn't do that, it's possible to do a combo of good, sensitive body work from one person and then process it with a somatic coach, but it's more complicated. So I'm just going to encourage that. And then the second thing is if it's important to you, really ask the practitioner about their social analysis. Like, do they work with and understand the shaping of the impact from poverty or racism or homophobia? I think the more of us who ask for that, 
the more it's going to inspire that whole field to take it on. So I'm curious, how is that last aspect that you just alluded to, how does that relate to one's own personal somatic work? Mm -hmm. Because most of us are impacted by a whole array of traumas. So while we might come in and say, I want to work on the impact of being beaten or being neglected, that so often is connected to whatever our gender training was. And it's so often connected to whatever our experiences around race and culture were or class. So just to give an example of myself, the focusing on healing child sexual abuse is very particular and a lot of trauma in and of itself. And it was so closely tied to gender and sexism in my family and my own lived experience. As I really came back into my sensuality and sexuality and in a queer person, there were levels of internalized homophobia that got very connected to my experiences of child sexual abuse. And if my practitioner and the people holding my space didn't know how to acknowledge and work with sexism or didn't know how to acknowledge and work with homophobia or just made them personal instead of social, I could not have healed through them in the same way. And because not that many practitioners have that, I did have to heal through some aspects with my activist friends or say, wow, I'm really suffering here. You know, this was the thing. Half the time I was with my activists and social change friends and half the time I was in healing trainings, doing healing and always trying to bridge the two. So maybe it continue to be more and more bridged for all of us. Mm -hmm. And it also occurred to me that we live in this sociopolitical environment that reinforces all of those circumstances That's that traumatize right. us. And even if yeah. we're working on healing ourselves and doing this work, it just makes it so hard to keep going with the work and to really That's sustain right. that healing. That's right. I appreciate you saying this because, of course, we're not healing in a vacuum mm -hmm. and we're not healing in a sociopolitical environment that's affirming, that's equitable, that holds everyone as dignified. We're healing in the opposite. So right. it's kind of like we're the, the fish swimming upstream and exactly. we're trying to create a different river. So just what you said, ongoing as healing, ongoing practice yeah. is so essential because of our conditions. Right, and swimming upstream as a wounded fish at that. Yeah, 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 yeah. I mean, I think all this really speaks to why life-affirming social action is so important. It's like changing our social conditions to be equitable, changing them to be dignifying and creating safety for all people, changing them to power with and a connection and our right balance with the planet, that type of social and economic system creates way less trauma, right? There will always be natural disasters. Humans will have traumatizing experiences, but when we have them and then we rest into a broader set of socioeconomic systems and cultural practices that really support dignity, safety, belonging, connection to the planet, healing really takes on a very different guys. So, you know, social action, healing ourselves and engaging in social action to really try to change those conditions is really doing the trauma prevention work is how I think about it. Right. And it also makes us all much less likely to continue in this endless process of re-traumatizing each other. Exactly. Exactly. 
Yeah, very well said. Exactly. Right. I think really we want to love each other. We want to be loved. You know, we want to belong. We want to belong each other. It's really where we thrive so much more. Right. It's like living life just surviving isn't really living at all. And one of the effects of trauma and shame is that we find ourselves trapped in survival strategies. Yeah. It doesn't bring out the best of us. And so much more possible. You know, so much more is possible with healing and with equity. So much more thriving, huh? Mm-hmm. And you also tell a lot of wonderful stories in the book and share other people's experiences of yeah. integrating this work into their lives and into the work they do, especially in in how they were translating it into their social justice work and the way they were able to understand what they were up against and to understand the people who were actually harming them and in a way that they weren't doing the dehumanizing practice unto them that was being done to them. Yeah. You know, yeah, I really deeply appreciate the folks in the book. Many of them I've worked with for a decade plus. Many of them now teach the work or bring the work into their social movement organizations. But there are just so many beautiful stories. And it felt very important given how much these folks have influenced and helped shape the work and also how they do the work out in the world. And it's like the traumas that people are going through are becoming the medicine that we actually need to heal the whole, you know, the whole planet, mm-hmm. our whole species, our whole society, down to every level and down to our individual selves as well. That's right. Beautifully said. The medicine, may it be the medicine, huh? Yeah. Yeah. And mm-hmm. and it's so easy to get lost in it, like to see and feel the experience of trauma and shame as just being the water that we're swimming in without any sense that there's any other way of being. Mm -hmm. Yeah, you know, when we get caught in surviving, whether that's trying to survive to get food on the table, like I'm aware of how people are so financially and food stressed right now because of the coronavirus and because of how many people are losing their jobs. And I think about that pressure. Those pressures are so real. And sadly, I don't know if you read this, that, you know, domestic violence hotlines are reporting increasing numbers of calls because people are in shelter in place. Yes. And intimate violence, intimate partner violence, and domestic violence is increasing. And to me, it just kind of highlights even more. We need a different practice. We need very embodied ways of healing trauma so we stop perpetuating it. And we need to shift social systems toward equity and dignity. You know, in these acute moments, it becomes even more clear how essential that is. And I watch this in these times, and I don't think there's a normal to go back to. But I really don't want to go back to kind of this standard operating procedures. But how do we use this time, these openings, toward transformation, you know, personally, collectively, and then systemically? I don't have an answer to that. I have ways to help us reset and use it for healing. That's the questions I'm in right now. It's the questions because so much is disrupted right now. And like you said, we don't want to be caught in suffering and survival strategies with no hope toward transformation, with no access to resilience, with no possibility of healing ourselves and getting involved in social change. We want that to be able to be a, a transformative process and path and not be caught. Right, because trauma and crises 
are powerful tools for change. If we mm-hmm. harness them, they can be. They can be. Exactly. And we so need to respond to this in a creative way that creates a sense of dignity for everyone, not just the 1% at the top of the exactly. food chain. Yeah. Exactly. Exactly. I see this as a really wonderful opportunity. I mean, right off, we're seeing as much of the world is locked into isolation, the planet is actually healing itself and, and regenerating itself. <laughs> And I think it's a wonderful model for what's possible if we can learn something from this. Yeah, that's right. And if we can keep the cooperation going, there's so much cooperation and innovation. And can we keep that going, you know, past the crisis for climate stabilization, right? For climate justice, for equity, for the well-being of all people. You know, we, we have this huge capacity to cooperate, and it's odd that we cooperate in crisis and we cooperate in war. Mm-hmm. And I'm like, oh, can we do high level of cooperation toward healing and justice? And this is a big break in, in global capitalism. This is a big crisis and opening. Mm-hmm. And it's very interesting how much we need to go toward a baseline universal income for everyone. There's so many yes. things that make sense right now that yes. actually make sense way past now. Yes. Yes. Yeah. Well, I hope we move in those directions. I think we are moving those directions, but I, I hope we move quickly. Yeah, me too, and sustainably, like and keep yes, doing it. Yes, exactly. Yeah, exactly, exactly. Well, I have so appreciated talking with you. I really appreciate how spacious the conversation is, and we could go so many different places and how much you're willing to share, too, so thank you. Mm. It's been my pleasure, and why don't you give us some websites and access information for people who would like to find out more about this Great. work? So, a couple websites, thepoliticsoftrauma.com, and uh, you can download a chapter for free there and get a feel of it. You can also go to generativesomatics.org, and that is the social justice organization that uses this work to support, support movements. And you can contact me through both of those. Well, I want to thank you so much. This has been such a delight to talk with you. And delight to talk with you, too. Thank you so much. And we'll talk again, huh? Okay. And be well. You too. Thank you. Bye-bye. Bye. That was Stacy Haynes. She's the co-founder of Generative Somatics, a multiracial social justice organization bringing somatics to social and environmental justice leaders, organizations, and alliances. She also designs and leads programs in embodied leadership, somatics and trauma, and somatics and social justice, as well as leading teacher training programs. She's also the founder of Generation 5, a social justice organization whose mission is to end the sexual abuse of children within five generations. She's the author of Healing Sex, a mind-body approach to healing sexual trauma, a how-to book offering a somatic approach to recovery from sexual trauma and developing healthy sexual and intimate relationships. And her new book that we've been talking about is The Politics of Trauma, Somatics, Healing, and Social Justice. And that's it for this Magical Mystery Tour. Thank you so much for listening. And in these challenging times, take really good care of yourselves and each other.